This is Good Question. I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs. If I could only pick one word to describe our culture today, it would have to be divided. And apparently I'm not alone. According to a recent CBS News poll, there's a thing that Democrats and Republicans do see eye to eye on. Yeah, 50% agree that in the next two years, Americans will be more divided than they are now. 34% So urban-rural polarization is this thing that's been getting substantially worse in America over the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years, such that... Survey after survey has shown that Republicans and Democrats now view each other not simply as wrong, but as malevolent, literally a danger to the Republic. In our divisive and digital age, it's nearly impossible to turn on the news or scroll through social media without seeing, let alone becoming entangled in, fierce disagreements from anything from the trivial to the significant. And all too often, that disagreement spins completely out of control into insult and anger. But Christians are supposed to be different. So how do we disagree well as believers? Part one, why all the disagreement? The more I thought about it, the more I wondered if we're actually disagreeing more, or we've always disagreed, but we didn't really know enough about each other's opinions and perspectives, so we just kind of assumed that everyone around us believed the same thing we do. So I called my friend and mentor Jim Mather to ask why he thinks we disagree so much. Jim is a missionary to internationals and refugees in our city, so he spends most of his time interacting with people who disagree, both unbelievers from other cultures and American believers skeptical of his proximity to refugees. We're impacted in our culture by many voices, and uh, probably because of the many social media outlets and the many ways we access, we walk around with these things. He held up his smartphone uh, loaded with social media apps. You've got 24 hours maybe not literally, but pretty close, you've got some kind of voice speaking into you. So the challenge of having a unified perspective on reality is extremely difficult. I think the the tendency to have a unified perspective on any one issue is almost gone. But it's not just that we've experienced an increase in voices speaking to us, exposing us to new information and ideas all the time. After all, even before the advent of social media, There were conflicting ideas in philosophy and theology and government and economics and so on that played out all across our society. So what's changed? And that's a good question. You know, there's a couple layers to to unpack here. That's Dan Darling. He works for the National Religious Broadcasters and has recently written a book titled Away With Words, which explores ways that Christians can use online conversations for good. On the one hand, uh, social media in the digital age has in some ways deregulated conversation to where uh, it's democratized conversation and it's elevated voices that might not have a chance to speak, right? I mean, even think of us here on this podcast. I host a podcast, you host a podcast. 20 years ago, would a radio station give us a microphone? Maybe, uh, maybe not. Would how would maybe we could write we could probably write articles and pitch them to major news magazines so so there might have been a way but it, it's democratized voices in the sense that everybody has a platform everybody can get a social media account set it up and start saying things or write a medium post or start a podcast you don't have it doesn't there's not much barriers to that so it's not just that we're hearing more voices we're hearing everyone's voices all the time 
And as Dan pointed out, giving the global community the same tool to express their opinions does have the potential for good. It keeps institutions honest. It puts the spotlight on new ideas that might not ever have seen the light of day just a few decades ago. But that's a two-edged sword. Everybody has a microphone. Everybody has a social media account. And so everybody's opinion is considered uh, this, given the same weight. And it's not like there's referees online. In the past, society had what were called information gatekeepers. So these were folks who were considered experts in their field and provided a trustworthy voice to discern what was true and important against what was false and irrelevant. For better or worse, public discourse worked more like a panel discussion of experts with us, a listening audience. But something changed. We have flattened things and democratized things so much that we, you know, we don't trust experts anymore, you know, whether it's in the field of medicine and someone who studied their whole life infectious diseases says you should probably get this vaccine. Got people who looked up three articles on the internet and know more than that guy. Not that I want to wade into the vaccine wars or, or other things, right? Uh, whether it's, uh, public policy or other things. Everybody's an expert. Din pointed out, though, to be fair, it's not like experts are perfect. Like everything else in this world, our cultural institutions are filled with human beings who are fallen in their nature, limited in their knowledge, and oftentimes pulled in all directions by the powers that be. I think we're here, though, not in a vacuum. I think we're here because our key institutions have failed us. And so institutions at every level have uh, not been, have not communicated well, have shown character deficits, you know, like they're communicating one thing and doing another. They've um, had mission creep at times. They've sometimes been condescending in a kind of just trust us. And you guys are a bunch of, um, you know, you know, disparaging people, the common folks in a way that they talk in ways that common folk don't understand them. So all those things have led to kind of an overreaction where we don't trust anybody. We don't trust the news. We don't trust the doctors. We don't trust anybody. That's not a great place to be. He's right. It seems like more and more people are rejecting established knowledge, quote unquote, educating themselves through unvetted sources and amplifying their confidence in haphazardly formed opinions. In his book, Death of Expertise, Tom Nichols argued that our society is facing what he called a, quote, Google-fueled, Wikipedia-based, blog-sodden collapse of any division between professionals and laymen. And you see this playing out all over the place. So Nichols recalled a time in the early 1990s when so-called AIDS denialists refused to see the connection between HIV and AIDS. Today, debates are raging online that pit experts against the larger community on topics ranging anywhere from the effectiveness of vaccinations to the shape of the earth. Just as public discourse has been democratized, so has truth. So maybe we did have the inclination to agree more in the past, but if that's the case, it's most likely that the unifying tendency we used to enjoy is going to stay there in the past. I asked Jim why he thought this might be. Because the mind is for sale. It's obvious, like, why companies want us to think about them. Advertisers want our attention and affection for pretty obvious reasons. They want to create a perceived need for their products, and that only happens if consumers can be convinced of the need. 
But opinions, philosophies, politics, and ideologies, they all want our minds too. And the more minds that believe a certain thought, the more powerful that thought becomes in society. The problem comes when we latch onto those opinions and then assign a moral value to them. In other words, I might say that a theological doctrine or social position is the right one and that it is true, but what I really mean is that it's good and that therefore I'm good for believing it. And you're not only wrong for thinking otherwise, but you're also bad for disagreeing with me. I think Rick Warren's probably got the best quote on this whole topic, where he says it's not necessarily unloving to disagree with someone. Uh, you don't have to agree with everything on a doctrinal point or on a relational point or a cultural point to love someone. And this is a challenge because we're being told, obviously by more of a political angle, that to not agree is to be an evil person or somehow an enemy of the state or an enemy of all that's American or whatever. So that's, that's what's creating the underlying tension, I believe. To make matters worse, even though the goal is unity founded in truth and love, some of us actually enjoy the state of the way things are. We actually like the conflict. Well, I think that we're all wired a little bit differently. That's Dr. Ryan Putman. He's a professor at Williams Baptist University and has recently published a book called When Doctrine Divides the People of God, which talks about Christian unity in the midst of theological diversity. Um, I think some people uh, aren't really very happy unless they're angry about something. And, uh, and that's what gives them pleasure is, is engaging people in sort of hostile or aggressive ways. So while some people actually enjoy sparring over disagreement, Jim pointed out that other spectators shout their opinions in the arena, often very thoughtlessly. Our opinions are, are voiced a lot of times without a lot of reflection. Dr. Putman put it in military terms. Oftentimes what we do is we do sort of trench warfare on the internet where we just sort of throw up an idea and we duck and cover. We don't really think necessarily about how it affects the other person on the other end. And it's not as though we're lobbing these thoughtless opinion grenades at each other in the privacy of a few friends. There's a lot of people watching us. You know, a lot of our arguments and disagreements are happening in public, right? So you're disagreeing with somebody, uh, you, you know, it, it's easy when we're sitting behind a keyboard and you're just tweeting something, you're tweeting back at somebody to think, this is just me and him in a coffee shop having a disagreement. But it's really not. It's, it's more like you and that person you're, you're arguing with up on stage in a, uh, maybe a, an auditorium or maybe even a coliseum. Right. I mean, think about it. If some of these people that have, you know, I have like 13,000 followers on Twitter. Imagine if someone has like a hundred thousand followers on Twitter or a million followers on Twitter, you're talking about conversations and arguments in a stadium full of people. And so our arguments are in public now. Worse yet, Dan says, some of us even feel obligated to argue and disagree, even if we're not quite sure what exactly we're disagreeing with. Sometimes I wonder if we're actually arguing, if we're actually mad or angry, or if we're performing, if we're having to act mad or angry in order to uh, perform in front of a crowd. And so I, those are all things we have to think about. So really, 
the disagreements that we have are agitated by the way we disagree, whether we're sincere but contentious or merely performing. And as a result, our disagreements are magnified, oftentimes without us realizing it, because everyone is watching our arguments. And that like completely robs our ability not only to be heard in our disagreements, but also to hear and to understand the other person. So any attempt at unity with them disappears once we and our spectators feel the heat of that friction. Part two, disagreeing well. You know, what's sad is we are living in a moment where we're so on edge. We're so tense with each other. Our political disagreements are so heated and our, our, our thought is so partisan. And, you know, the church should be different. The church should be, uh, should be set apart. We should be, we should be acting in a way that's not like the rest of the world, but unfortunately, um, we use social media the same way that non-Christians use social media. We, uh, we get into the same sort of heated disagreements about, about the Christian faith that other people get into about politics or that we sometimes ourselves get into about politics. So we really have to be distinctive in the way that we approach our disagreements as believers. So this is the one thing that Christians ought to agree on, that when we disagree, we ought to disagree differently. The question, though, is how do we go about doing that? For some of us, our gut reaction might be to retreat from social media altogether, just delete the apps and walk away. But there's a problem with this move. Yeah, you have. I think people have to... I mean, the case I make in the book is that this is where we are. I mean, this, we're not going to ever go back. We're always going to be here, you know, right? We're not going to reverse. So I do think Christians should be at this. These are where the conversations are happening. So I do think Christians should be here, but I do think there are times and seasons where we need to just rest our souls and get off the stage um, a little bit. If you, if you know what I mean. And there is a, sometimes we need a desert, period where we just sort of, uh, you know, I know for me, I struggle with that, that I need times where I'm just backed away from all of this. Um, it, it's not good for our soul to constantly be catechized by the new cycle and by what's happening. On the other hand, I do think there can also be ironically a kind of self-righteousness and pulling back, right? Um, where, we pride ourselves on being the guy with the flip phone. We're not the people on social media all the time. We're not the people who are super connected. We're not the angry people online. And we're going to tell everybody how much we're not, right? So I think there's a danger that way. There's a danger of withdrawing so much that we're not part of conversations. But, you know, I think every person has to check their soul and see, like, where do I need to be? And it's very healthy for us to say, do I need to be on this platform? Is this good for me? Is this good for my family? Am I the voice to speak out on all this stuff? Is, is, has God given me uh, this calling and this task? 
So social media is here to stay, regardless of how frequently we use it, if we even use it at all. But instead of retreating, Dan said, we need to be discerning. I think we have to be discerning. Hannah Anderson wrote a great book uh, called All That Is Good. It's, it's on discernment. And, you know, when we think of discernment now, we kind of think of these sort of angry blogger types who just want to pick everybody apart. Or we think of that furrow-browed person that every church has where, you know, he's looking up every Christian leader and finding out all the things wrong with them. Or That's not really what discernment. Discernment is being able to separate what is good or what is good from what is uh, bad, what is true and beautiful from what is not. We live in a fallen world. And so not everything in a fallen world um, is good. There are things that are corrupted. And so being able to discern the true and the beautiful. And we need discernment. The Bible is really, through, cover to cover, really talks about this, you know, about having uh, eyes to see about that. And one of the, I think, byproducts of the Spirit's work in our hearts and lives should be an ability to discern between the, discern the true and the beautiful, right? Paul says to whatever is good and true, think on these things, right? So a distinctive approach is one that uses discernment. It separates what's important from what's trivial. It prioritizes the most pressing things while lying aside moments that are fleeting. Most importantly, it seeks to discover truth in the midst of confusion and lies all for the glory of God and for the promotion of unity for the sake of the gospel. This is especially true when we disagree theologically. So I've got to be able to understand that if I'm not affecting the local church to know Christ and to love Christ, even if I'm Baptist or I'm Presbyterian or I am non-denominational, that I can agree that while doctrine is extremely important, it's not going to divide me in the cause of spreading Christ and the message of the cross. So what is the gospel of salvation? If Christ is the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, if he is God, and if, he, if the gospel is that you must believe that he was crucified for your sins, rose on the third day, is, you know, rose seated at the right hand of the Father, all of those things, and I have to proclaim that by faith through grace, then I've got something that I can work and develop unity and relationship, loving everyone, but collegially working intimately as much as possible with everyone that can agree on those things and talk of being willing to talk with grace and, and listening with, uh, uh, with others to learn, Hey, well, why do you believe these other things? It's, if it's really important to you, it should be important to me. I don't have to agree with you, but let's, Let's back up for a second. How could it be that two Christians, both of whom faithfully read Scripture, could come to disagreement about beliefs and doctrine, and that that disagreement would then lead into a disunifying argument in the first place? A lot of factors play into that. Number one, we're all imperfect readers. None of us have a God's eye perspective or, or a God's eye point of view. And the, the way that we read Scripture sometimes is filtered through our our tiny little brains, the way we misunderstand things in, in, in everyday life, we can misunderstand scripture as well. We also have the effects of sin on the mind. Um, we sometimes do the actual work of biblical interpretation differently. Like you might interpret a Greek word one way and I interpret a Greek word another way, or we 
interpret the historical background of a passage one way and I interpret it another way. But other factors play into that, like um, the tradition in which you were raised sometimes shapes the way you read the Bible. You sometimes read the Bible with the desire to prove what your church teaches, or, or maybe it was some sort of uh, experience or some sort of feeling that you had that sometimes, unfortunately, kind of dictates the way we respond. I know a lot of people, when they hear the idea that, that Jesus is the only way to God or that, that, uh, that hell is a real place where people suffer um, eternally for, for their sin if they're apart from Christ, that really strikes people in an emotional way. It sort of turns their stomach. So I think we have different sort of gut reactions to different doctrines as well. And it's our emotional reactions, it seems, that cause us to take to social media and air out our grievances. But dialogue driven by emotion is rarely beneficial in person, let alone on a medium that cannot capture body language, is often lacking context, and is global, instant, and permanent. In one of his more well-known prayers, the Lord Jesus asked for unity among his disciples. Holy Father, he prayed, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. John 17 11. It is this very close and intimate relational unity that ought to be the distinctive factor in the way that believers disagree. The Lord's prayer reigns true even in the midst of our disagreements. So, with disagreement present among believers, the big question becomes, well, how do we hold two things in tension? On the one hand, diversity, and on the other, unity. First and foremost, when we say about what Jesus prayed in John 17, he also prayed that we would be sanctified in truth. Sanctify them in the truth, Jesus prayed. Your word is truth. John 17, 17. So it, it's not that we, that we choose unity or truth, but it's that we find unity in truth. And the important thing for Christians to be able to do is distinguish between those things which are most essential or most important for Christians to believe, you know, things like uh, the deity of Jesus, the doctrine of the Trinity, that we're saved by faith alone in Christ, those sorts of things that are, you know, um, these are essentials. We're not, we're not even going to debate on those things. And the more secondary things, like uh, the way we do church government um, or the way we practice baptism. And, uh, and then there are those things that, and even in a local church, we, can, we have freedom to, uh, to, to agree or disagree about. I mean, things that are really of lesser importance. It's important that we all agree that Jesus is returning, it's not as important that we all agree on when and how, you know, those, those sorts of things that people sometimes spat about. Just knowing what things are important is a, is a key step. And this is such an important point that Dr. Putman is bringing up. It's not that Jesus is asking his followers to choose one or the other, unity or truth. He's challenging us to seek unity in truth, even if that means laying down minor issues. Jim told me that he learned very early on in his ministry how important discernment was. Being able to see and hear Christ is everything. And how we call people to relationship is vital. So when I came here in 1998... So a little background here. Jim was formerly a missionary in Pakistan until he relocated to southern Alabama to lead a university ministry for international students that 
has since blossomed into a community of both internationals and refugees. In fact, the ministry, Friends of Internationals, caught the public's attention a few years ago when it was featured on BBC and The Daily Show for Jim's work with Syrian refugees in the Deep South. I previously was the director of nursing of an eye hospital, and we were, our primary vision was to allow people to see Christ through compassionate healing ministries, healing the blind in particular. We did eye surgery. As Jesus said, you know, you know, so much of his healing ministry related to the blind. And it has a d- deep spiritual impact, but I've, now I transitioned to a university ministry I've never done before. And I started praying, doing ministry, but more focused on, okay, Holy Spirit, this is something that I really need your help on. How do you want me to approach these international students and others? And the big thing that came to me was this statement. And that is, before people can believe in its fullest sense of the word, they need to know they can belong. So understanding that Jesus said, come follow me. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. So we're calling people to a relationship, a bold proclamation. We have something that we want you to understand, but we want you to come with us. So belonging, I guess, is my... My thing, I think that we can all say, if we're unconditionally going to love in the God kind of love, that we're going to be patient, we're going to truly care for what people are saying, we're going to be unafraid to listen to differing, contradictory even, ways of thinking and living, so that love can find a way to build a bridge. 1 Corinthians 9. Latter part, Paul said, I have become all things to all people that I might win some. So there's a winsomeness that allows for bridge building. So I think this is what we're lacking. There are bridge builders in our culture, but there's many more bridge burners. Maybe you would even say demolition experts. (laughs) Setting charges instead of, you know, throwing pontoon bridges across the Rhine River, you know. Part 3. Conviction and Civility There should be a distinctly Christian way of engaging. So even if you're right on the issue and you're speaking truth, there's a distinctly Christian way to speak truth. In other words, if I'm speaking out on the right of unborn children to not be killed, which I believe strongly about and I've been active on my whole life, there should still be a distinctly Christian way in which I am making that case, right? If I'm speaking on racial justice, there should be a distinctly Christian way that I'm doing it, that God cares not just about what we say, but how we say it. We have this idea that courage and civility are somehow, you know, like mutually exclusive. And it's just not the case. I mean, we see in that passage in Peter that, Civility and courage to go together can go together. First Peter three fifteen. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. And in fact, the loudest person in the room is often not the most courageous, but the most afraid. And sometimes the most courageous person in the room is the one who's silent. So. Just because I say something in all caps doesn't mean I'm more courageous. <laughs> and, and I think we have to think that way. There should be a distinctly Christian way. And one of the ways we can do that is just by continually centering the 
the dignity of the person with whom we're talking. And, and that's a challenge to do. Dr. Putman agreed. There's a, there's a sense in which we have to have theological disagreements where we recognize the worth, the value, and the dignity of the person with whom we disagree, where we seek to glorify God in our conversations and our disagreements. We recognize that the disagreements we have sometimes are public and, and the, the unbelieving world is watching. So all of those things have to be incorporated into the way that we interact with one another when we do disagree. So how exactly do we uphold both truth and dignity, conviction and civility in public spaces of disagreement? One of the habits I've tried to do in, the, in recent days is this, when I have a conversation with somebody, whether it's online or off, you know, if I'm having it on Twitter, I try to just keep the conversation civil, even if you're having a sharp disagreement. And then at the end say, hey, listen, I don't know if I agree with everything you're saying, but you raised some good points, right? Uh, or if I'm having a private conversation where it's, it's, you know, you can be a little bit more intense privately, whether it's texting or private messaging, but say, hey, you raised some really good points and I've learned some things. Even things like that that show a measure of grace, even as you're in a heated dispute, uh, are really, really important. This is not to say we should be um, afraid to speak boldly, to speak prophetically. Uh, I think you see that all through scripture, but also in a distinctly Christian way. If we really believe what we say we believe and the resurrection is true and Christ is renewing and restoring all things, we should speak out, we should be a boldness, but we don't have to use the rhetorical tools of the enemy. You know, the Bible said it's Satan who prowls around seeking whom to devour. It shouldn't be Christians. And so I think that's really an important thing for us to think through as even as we engage in sharp disagreements. I would say that for all of our disagreements, whether it's in-house disagreements or whether it's outside disagreements, it's a valuable practice for us to pray with individuals. If you have the pray for your pray for people with whom you disagree, and if you have the opportunity, pray with them. Gather in a prayer meeting and and just speak clearly say like we 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 come together as brothers and sisters in Christ we disagree about what your word says here but we want to serve you and your kingdom well and uh, just give us clarity and wisdom and how to, how to relate to one another and this kind of a prayer when it's put into practice requires us to listen james tells us to be quick to hear slow to speak and slow to anger yeah i would say the biggest thing that i've learned in my marriage is can relate to the church and that is that for me personally as a man i feel like that i've been for much of my life a very poor listener my life has been strange in the sense that i was called to the salvation i was called to ministry and then god spoke to me and said i don't want you to go finish your bible school i want you to go to nursing school so i wound up becoming a nurse and i had 35 classmates i was the only male and I was always in fights with my classmates and there was a lot of tension in our relationships and, and I learned a lot from them and it wasn't just nursing. It was also about being a human being, a loving human being. And the thing that I was weak at, I was not a good listener. So even in marriage, as I got married a few years later, um, my wife is an excellent, she's a supreme listener. She's got great relationships. And so to have a successful marriage, I've had to become a better listener. 
And I think I could just say two words, love listens. If we're not listening, we're not loving. And in our culture, and in the church, and on mission, it's not about just about proclamation. It's actually pausing to listen to the response. Jesus was a great listener. He was a great questioner. He was truth himself. He personified truth, but he wasn't afraid to listen because love is not afraid either. So we've got to have a real conversation. And when it comes to theological disagreements, part of that, said Dr. Putman, is looking beyond the horizon of our tribes. You know, we need to sometimes see beyond our little comfort zones, our little niche groups, and see that we can do ministry effectively together. People who are, who, who are, whose primary focus is the Great Commission and uh, making Jesus known to people, making Jesus known to the nations, will sometimes disagree over petty things, over some things that are more important, but, but in, each, in each and every instance, disagreement should not be as important to us as what we agree on. And what we agree on is the gospel, the, the common thread that, that, that we have from Genesis to Revelation um, with, with the doctrine of creation, with the doctrine of fall into sin, with the doctrine of redemption through, through Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection, and ultimately the promise that God will recreate this world, make this world new again with the return of Jesus. So those are the big picture things. Why can't we stress those things rather than the nitpicky things? Because I feel like there's a day coming when we're going to have to answer before God for how we treated one another and um, really what, what were our priorities. Patience, grace, a listening ear, fearlessness with truth, civility with disagreement, glorifying Christ with our words, whether spoken or posted online. All these things lead me to the inescapable truth that disagreeing well as a believer begins not with the other, but with us. It begins by rightly understanding who we are and whose we are. First, as Christians, we are communicators who bear the image of God and are called to steward social media. Christianity is a, is a religion of words. I mean, we have a God who speaks. The fact that we have a God who speaks, that's a great gift. God doesn't owe us to speak to us, but yet he does. The Bible opens with God speaking. God has given us Jesus, who is the Logos, the Word of God. You might want to say he's God speaking. We have the written Word of God that, that God used human beings to physically write down his words to give to us. And then God has created human beings uniquely, by the way, uniquely. One of the things that marks us as image bearers, not the only thing, but one of the things is that we speak, we communicate. When we communicate, we are imaging the great communicator who's, who's God. And so I think that's why God cares about the shape of our words, not just that we say the right things, but how we say it. Words can reflect, you know, James talks about this, that words can either be a source of life or a source of death. They could be, they can be life-giving or destructive. Second, we are not our own, but we're God's. And we need a right imagination of how God views us. 
Part of this means to understand that God doesn't view us in the way that we want to be viewed online. You are not your avatar. You are not the person you curate online. That, that the good news of the gospel is that God loves the real version of you. The one that isn't as good a father as you curate on Instagram. That isn't as courageous as the fighting polemicist on Twitter. It isn't as witty all the time as the guy who puts dad jokes on Facebook. God loves the real you. The, the parts of you that nobody sees, that make you feel incomplete. If you are in Christ, you're enough, you are secure, you have God as your father, and you don't have to perform in order to get his approval. And to me, I think that's one of the most important things for us to understand, uh, particularly in this internet age, which provides us with so many temptations to find cheap satisfaction with the approval of this tribe or that tribe uh, in ways that will eventually fade away. Question, a sporadic, episodic podcast from Theology in the Middle that asks, well, good questions about faith and culture. Check out more at theologyinthemiddle.com, where you'll find resources like another podcast you may enjoy called the So What Podcast. See you next time. Next time on Good Question. Is Mary the mother of God? No. 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 Uh, when you ask people if they believe Mary's mother of God, they go no because um, Mary is not God. The problem you have, and this is the question that always comes up, if you say Mary's not the mother of God, what does that say about Jesus? Is Mary Jesus' mother? Is Jesus God? Then if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. If Mary is the mother of Jesus and Jesus is God, that makes Mary the mother of God.